I'm going to start by praying for us this morning. Father, we are so grateful to be gathered together today. What a joy to be in community together and to enjoy such a beautiful sunny day. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we come to this lesson, some of us at least, come to this lesson this morning with some angst. What does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my marriage? What does this mean for how I love and serve other people? Some of us come to this message with really amazing marriages, and these words are pure delight. Some of us come from really hard places in our marriage, and some of these words are really, really painful. And some of us in this room have lost spouses that we really love, and this whole topic of marriage brings longing in our hearts, and some are single and wanting to be married, and this stirs up longing in our hearts, and others are divorced and have just experienced a lot of disappointment and struggle. And so, Lord, can we just lay all that at your feet right now? Can we just take a deep breath together with you here? Would your spirit just fall upon this room? And would you guard my words and protect our hearts, but open us up to something of truth that we can walk away deeply encouraged this morning. So Lord, we want to see you as you truly are. We believe you're faithful. We believe you're trustworthy. And we want to take in your word in such a way that it reveals your glory today. So would you help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So did you know that on um, Sunday was uh, May 8th, March 8th, was International Women's Day? Did you know that? Um, This is a celebration of womanhood that actually began in 1909. It started in New York City, and then the, the next year, in 1910, it kind of became an international day of recognition for women's rights around the world. Now, um, in some countries like the Middle East, this is a day of um, protest against sexual discrimination. And um, you, can just, you can just leave the other slide up. Tell, I'll walk you through these protests, but thanks, Ren. So um, women are in the Middle East, when they, when they rally on, on National Women's Day, uh, people throw stones at them, and they get arrested. In other places, like in London, there was a big march, and um, in that day, men and women came together, and they really celebrated the progress that they had made in securing rights for women. And on Sunday, both men and women marched, carrying banners that said, I am Generation Equality. So here are some pictures about what it looked like around the world on Sunday. Um, The first photo that you just saw a second ago is Indonesia. There's women marching in Indonesia. The next one is London, and um, these are, this is what it looked like in London. And then Jakarta, and then Berlin, Pakistan is next, Spain, and Kyrgyzstan, women around the world. And sadly, The world is still divided over how women are valued and what rights are afforded to them. And you know what? Religion plays a significant role of influence in how women are viewed and what functions they're expected to fill in the family and in society. 
So it's challenging to come to a passage like ours today and not kind of feel a wellspring of emotion because we love the Word of God. We believe the Word of God is timeless and true. So how do we understand specifically 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 7? And honestly, I have really struggled over this passage this week because I have heard, I've had the pain of hearing this passage preached in churches not River West, but in other churches in such a way that it degraded women and it gave men permission to have power over women. Now, let me tell you what I've heard preached to me in the years that I've been in church. I have heard um, that the reason that a woman must submit to, to her husband is because Eve ate the apple. Therefore, women are not trustworthy to make big decisions. Have any of you ever heard that? That's why. I've heard it preached that women are the weaker vessel because they are emotional and irrational during menstruation, and therefore they must depend on their husbands for psychological stability and rational thought. Anybody else heard that? I've heard it preached that the curse in Genesis 3.15 means that a woman will always want to undercut her husband's rightful authority, so he must rule over her for her own protection and for the protection of their marriage. Anybody else heard that? Okay, if I'm the only one, now you see why I bring so much baggage to this passage. But I know some of you have. I know some of you have grown up in contexts where, where it has been preached to you, this ver these passages have been preached to you in ways that I don't believe are true to the heart of the passage. So, and I found that though pastors and teachers will say that men and women are equal in God's eyes, they will exposit some of these biblical passages to show ways in which women are inferior to men in their gifts and their leadership ability and their roles and their functions in the church. So let me be honest, this passage um, has some triggering language for me. Has it had triggering language for any of you? Okay, so we're in this together. Um, but let me tell you that some of the triggering language in this passage for me comes because I sp spent 12 years in a marriage to an emotionally abusive husband. And I took much of this language to heart as I um, really tried to submit and tried to um, suffer in my marriage in order for the sake of my marriage to continue. I really, I really read these verses in such a way that I believed and persevered in a very, very difficult place because I believe God's word is true, and I do believe God's word is true. But the tides of my marriage turned when I actually had enough strength to say, no more. Things had to change. And when I decided that I wasn't going to turn the other cheek anymore, and I believe that God led me to that place in his wisdom, it wasn't just me deciding, um, that's when things actually began to change. And I do believe that there are times to be in places of suffering and to turn the other cheek and to remain patient and long-suffering, but I also think there are times for appropriate boundaries and for ultimatums. Now, praise God, God did an amazing work in both my husband and I to redeem our broken marriage by his grace, and it's a miracle. We've been married 36 years and we've had 24 of those 36 years that have been truly amazing. 
Um, we have today an amazing love and an amazing partnership, an amazing friendship. In our marriage, there is truly kindness and gentleness and peace day in and day out. I can't even remember the last time that there was a harsh word spoken um, to each other. Um, the heart change that I experienced in myself and in my husband is truly one of the greatest testimonies of the reality of God's power to transform a human heart, and I get to live with it every single day. But I, I just want you to know that if you are struggling with this passage, I understand. And I also have a perspective about the heart of God that I believe comes from studying the fullness of Scripture, so that I think we can look at Peter's writings through a cultural lens first to know why he chooses certain phrases that he does to express his thoughts, and then we can extract a deeper meaning from the passage that has application to our lives. I believe, really, that one of the, the greatest training grounds for the development of Christ-like character happens in the context of marriage. Because marriage, it's two people rubbing lives against each other. It's iron sharpening iron. It's a very vulnerable place to live in, in such intimacy with another person. And I think that what, what Peter intends in this passage is truly just to help us be like Jesus to each other. Not only for the sake of our witness to an unbelieving world, but also for the sanctification of our own souls. So I've titled this message, Be Like Jesus. And here's what I want us to learn today. I hope we learn that we become more like Jesus when we humbly serve and selflessly love each other. We become more like Jesus when we humbly serve and selflessly love each other. We're going to look at this passage in two parts, and I will just tell you in advance, most of our time is going to be spent in the first seven verses. So we're going to look at be like Jesus in your marriage, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to look at be like Jesus in your community, verses 8 through 12. Okay, are you ready to jump in? Okay, we're going to begin by examining this passage in its historical context, because that's really, really important. Now remember, let's remind ourselves of where we've been in this study of 1 Peter. Remember that Peter is writing to believers who have fled Rome under the oppression of Nero, and they have planted themselves in these communities around Asia Minor, in these different provinces. Remember also that Peter has been exhorting these young Christians, young in their faith, who are relishing their new freedom in Christ. He is exhorting them to honor their government and to honor their roles as, as servants or, or uh, to their masters or employees. We talked about last week, how, however you want to think of that. He's challenging them to honor by, by hypotasso. Remember that word? It means submitting. So it means to put oneself under the order of, of leadership. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because Christ followers are to, to live a holy life, a life that testimonies to the reality of the gospel and that glorifies God. And the way that we do that is by being good citizens and also by being good employees, by good, being in healthy relationships, honoring relationships with each other. And remember, Peter was telling them that people are watching them. People are watching their lives. The people, and specifically in these communities that they were living, they thought they were religious zealots. And skeptics were afraid that they were going to, to be rabble-rousers and create chaos and rebellion. So Peter has been telling them, look, you need to live above reproach. You need to be good citizens, and your conduct needs to be a testimony to the reality of your faith in Jesus. That's where we've been. Now, it appears that in this community, there are some women who have unbelieving husbands. 
So their conduct is also going to have an effect on their spouses who don't yet know Jesus. So this is what he says. He says, likewise. So remember, likewise, we're connecting this to what we just heard. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some, of, some, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So let's take a moment and just imagine that we are back in the first century. We're back living lives on this earth the way that these people were living in this time. First century Christians, remember, were primarily Jews who had converted to Christianity. So this Jewish culture is very, very patriarchal. That's the system in which they live. It's a highly patriarchal culture which means that women were viewed as being inferior to men. They just were. That's how they were viewed. Women had very few personal rights or freedoms. So, for example, their primary function was to serve in the home and with the family. They had no financial means at all. They never could receive an inheritance from their parents. The inheritances always went to the men, so they had no money. Their only means of survival was to be in a family structure, um, they were not. Um, they also couldn't choose their own husbands. They didn't marry for love. They married. They were match made. You remember Fiddler on the Roof, matchmaker, matchmaker. That's how they got their husbands. They were they were put together. Um, they couldn't be educated, so they didn't know how to read. They didn't know how to write. They weren't allowed to attend school. They also couldn't worship God in the synagogues. In fact. When only the men were allowed to go into the synagogues, the women had what was called a women's court outside the synagogue, and they could gather there to worship. They weren't allowed to move through the city freely. There were certain places where women could go and certain places where women couldn't go. So that's what it was like first century as a woman in the Jewish culture, even though this person had come to faith in Jesus. Now, remember, these people are out in the areas of Asia Minor, Asia Minor, and they're living with Gentile people, and they're, they're sharing the gospel with the Gentile people, and now Gentile women are coming to faith in Christ. So a Gentile who converted to Christianity had a very, very different perspective, because a Gentile woman could pursue her interests, she could, she could use her gifts in the marketplace, she could get educated, she could have a job. She could own her own business, she could hold a public office, she could vote, and she could have property. We've got these two groups of women now coming into the, the church. Can you imagine how complex this was to have two different women groups in the body of Christ? How confusing it must have been for the Jewish woman to see the freedom of the Gentile woman, and maybe she would want to rise up against her husband in rebellion. Or the Gentile women, woman who may still have an unbelieving husband, because she's often women are the first to come to faith in Christ. So she might have an unbelieving husband, and how challenged she might be to show the sacrificial love of Jesus to her spouse. So Peter's intention, I believe, is to encourage this wife of the unbelieving spouse to love and honor and serve her husband in such a way as to win him to Jesus. Women are influencers. We are influencers. And we can influence for good, right? With love, joy, peace, kindness, 
goodness, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, right? When the fruits of the Spirit are alive in a woman, we can be tremendous influencers for good. But we also can influence for bad with our negative and complaining, grumbling spirits. That's what James was talking to us about, right? Grumbling, complaining. Proverbs 21.9 says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. <laughs> Any of your husbands feel that way? Twenty-one nineteen says, It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. It is not pleasant to live with a nagging, fretful, complaining wife. And you see, Peter's, he is applying this theme of holy living now to the family. And he is explaining how Christian wives can influence their husbands for the gospel by treating them with honor and respect. This is a heart posture. It's a heart posture of love that emanates from the the core of a woman who knows and loves and serves Jesus. It's the interior beauty that outshines all exterior adornment, which is why Peter says this in verse 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Interestingly, that Greek word for adornment is cosmos, and it's where we get the word cosmetics. Now, it's funny because every culture seems to have their own ideal of, of what external beauty looks like. Like in America, the American standard of beauty, you've got to be tall and slender and youthful on the outside, but on the inside, you have to be passionate and full of strength and confidence, and basically, you've got to be Wonder Woman. There you go. (laughs) That is the picture of American beauty, right? But in Peter's day, external beauty was characterized by braided hair and fine clothing and gold jewelry. The more money that a woman had, the more fashionable she was. Kind of like today, right? The more money a woman has, the better clothes she can buy, the more fashionable she is. So Peter is actually not making a statement against what a woman wears or how she fixes her hair, although there are segments of Christianity who embrace that very literally and uh, encourage their women to look very dowdy, so to speak, with no makeup, no hair, no nice clothing. That is not what Peter is saying. He is making a comment about the inner beauty of a woman which outshines the outer adornment. You know, a woman's beauty, and I would also add a man's handsomeness, radiates from the inside out. Now, um, I met a man once who I think truly is prob- was on the planet the most handsome man I have ever seen. Um, he was a co-worker of my husband's, and it, this is when we were young, okay? And he was tall, dark, and handsome with this amazing head of lush hair. Okay, you know my, the men in my family. My son and my husband are bald. So um, this, this, this beautiful, lush head of hair was quite stunning. And I was so embarrassingly nervous around him. I could barely speak. He was truly so handsome, I could barely look at him. Um, I was so enamored. And I was in my 20s, okay? Um, and on occasion, Bob and I would do social things with him and his wife. And it didn't take long before that external shine began to tarnish because this guy was such a jerk. 
He was. He was so negative and condemning and critical, and he was so harsh. He didn't like Christians. He didn't like God. I mean, truly, his inner spirit was so ugly, and I never saw him as handsome ever again. And this is what Peter's saying. You know, the reality is it just takes a few hours for us to work on our exteriors, to make our exteriors look good, but it takes a whole lifetime for the beauty of the interior to be cultivated in character qualities. It's, and Peter says this part is imperishable. This part lasts forever. So God sees the heart, and it's the inner person who radiates out of the eyes and the smile of the outer person. And he's saying this is how a believing wife can shine the love of Christ to an unbelieving husband and win him to faith. He says in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You know... For if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, they had a very, very complicated marriage. Their relationship, I think, was fraught with challenges. Okay, just, just, let's just think about Abraham and Sarah for just a moment. So first of all, Abraham gets this vision from God, and he goes and he tells Sarah that they're going to move to a strange land. They're just going to pick up and go. And then along the way, they're in Egypt, and Abraham tells the Pharaoh of Egypt that Sarah is his sister. So the Pharaoh takes Sarah as his wife temporarily. Then they, Abraham has this amazing amount of land that they're going to live in, but he gives the best piece of land to his nephew Lot. And he takes Sarah over to the other piece that's not so nice. And then another king comes along, Abimelech, and Abraham tells him that Sarah is his sister, and he takes her temporarily as his wife. And then Abraham's 100 years old, and God tells them that they're going to have a baby. Sarah's 90, post-menopause. And she's like, what? And then she finally has a baby, the miracle boy, and Abraham takes him up on a mountain and is getting prepared to sacrifice him to God. Like, I don't know about you, but this is a pretty strange marriage. And this is a crazy life that Sarah's living with Abraham. And they both make so many mistakes. Remember, at one point, when Abraham and Sarah aren't able to have a child, Sarah gives Abraham her handmaiden to be a surrogate mother. So they, they both made a lot of mistakes. Neither of them was perfect, but they both trusted God in really hard places. And they were examples of people who lived by faith. And Sarah was a beautiful woman on the outside, which is why these different kings wanted to make her their wives. But she was also a beautiful person on the inside because she trusted God and she trusted Abraham in really hard places. And that's why Peter hearkens back to her as an example. Well, now finally, after six verses of discussion about women, Peter addresses husbands in one verse. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does this mean? What does it mean for a husband to live with his wife in an understanding way? 
Some theologians look back to the Old Testament, and they, they say this is an exhortation for a man to be considerate and sensitive regarding his sexual relations with, his, with their wives, rather than being demanding or self-serving. And I think that certainly does apply. But I think also this is about husbands being challenged to dwell in close relationship with their wives to know their wives intimately, and to be able to discern the condition of their hearts, their worries, their anxieties, their strains. This also means assisting them by alleviating their burdens. A husband is to honor his wife, appreciate her, care for her, be tender with her. A man's wife should be his top priority, not only in his heart, but also in his time and in his schedule. And one way that Peter challenges men to honor their wives is to regard them as delicate vases. That's the meaning of weaker vessels, delicate vases. So the idea is not that a woman is weaker emotionally or psychologically or spiritually. The idea is that she is not as strong as he is physically. And so she will be wounded more easily if he is harsh or physically careless with her. Now, I know this isn't an absolute truth because there are some women who are stronger than men physically in our world today. I know there are women who lift weights and build strength, and there are some that could actually be physically stronger than a man. But the basic principle is that if you were to have a a tug of rope, a war, tug of war rope up here, and you were to put 10 women on one side and 10 men on the other, the men would win. They are just built physically stronger than most women. And I have two very, very strong men in my, in my household, and I'm glad they're physically stronger than me. I benefit from their strength. But Peter's point is that a husband must live with his wife in a way that respects her as a joint heir in Christ, a partner in the grace of life. Therefore, she must be treated like a fine piece of china that will break if handled roughly. And this is so important, in fact, that Peter warns that, hu- that husbands their prayers will not be answered or their prayers will be hindered if they don't treat their wives as valuable treasures. Now wait, okay. Before we go on, just pause and take this in for just a moment because I want us, I want us to understand something about the upside-down kingdom of God to the people in the first century, okay? Remember, Jewish Christian women who were previously regarded as inferior and unvaluable in their patriarchal society, except at home, serving and having babies, are now to be regarded as priceless treasures by their husbands. These men were no longer supposed to just drop into home long enough to sleep and have sex. They're actually commanded to enjoy living alongside their wives in a companionable way, to be partners, to be friends, to be co-heirs in Christ. The gospel serves to restore the kind of partnership between man and woman that was originally instituted by God in the Garden of Eden before sin and Satan messed everything up. Do you understand that? The gospel serves to restore the kind of partnership between man and woman that God created in the Garden of Eden before sin and Satan messed everything up. So how do we apply Peter's words of wisdom to our marriages today? What's interesting, because both Peter and Paul speak to the relationship of Christian marriage and what it looks like when a man and a woman mutually love and serve each other. 
They both describe a husband as a man who selflessly loves his wife and a wife as a woman who lovingly responds to her husband's leadership with trust and respect. So Peter here has just explained how men are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Today, this could begin with a conversation about deeper things, about dreams between you and your husband, thoughts, struggles. Communication is so vital to a marriage, and both people need a safe place to process life together. You know, we need to be probably better at asking each other questions and seeking to really listen beyond just the words, but to listen to the heart, to look look at the body language, um, to try to be that one person of sacred trust where we can come together as husband and wife and share the deeper things that are going on in our our circumstances, in our workplaces, in our souls. Um, We need to have that person To live in an understanding way means to live in communion with each other. That means to live as soulmates, intimately, as partners, as friends, as lovers. It's not living as roommates, which many people today live as roommates in their homes. It's not living isolated in separate activities, not spending time together. It means being together, living alongside each other. In Ephesians, listen to how Paul exhorts husbands to love their wives sacrificially. He says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.28, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Ephesians 5.33, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respect, that word means to regard as worthy of special consideration, honor, or esteem. To see your spouse as being worthy of special consideration, honor, and esteem. You know, that's the natural response of a marriage that consists of two Christ-loving people who treat each other with respect. Who wouldn't respond to such a loving and nurturing husband like Peter and Paul describe? Who wouldn't respond? Who wouldn't want to place herself under the trust of such a a provider, a protector, and a partner? But the problem is, we aren't married to Jesus, are we? And And our spouses aren't married to Jesus either. We don't have the perfect spouse, and we ourselves are not the perfect spouse to our husbands. You know, we're people who have wounds, and so we wound We are often too selfish and too egocentric. We're demanding of our husbands more than sometimes we're willing to give. We are deceived by our own sinfulness, and we desperately need the wisdom of grace of God to be um, loving, to love them the way they need to be loved, and they need the grace and wisdom of God to love us the way that we need to be loved. Marriage is really, really difficult. Um, But thankfully, Christian marriage is made up of two people who are in a covenant relationship with God. It's a triangle relationship. It's a man and a woman in a covenant relationship with God. And so God can help us be more like Jesus in our marriages. He can help us. So what can we do to to build stronger relationships with our spouses? I just want to share with you a few things that Bob and I have done over the years that have been really, really helpful to us. Um, First and foremost is pray. Just pray together. It's really, really hard 
sometimes when you're in your corners to come together and pray. But it's that triangle again of relationship. When you can come together with God and you can be vulnerable and intimate together with God, it's really, really powerful. Bob and I have been doing this only for the last two years. And it's been probably the most transforming part of our relationship that we've experienced in 36 years of being married is this opportunity to pray together and just be real together before God. Secondly, just get counseling. If you're stuck in a rut, if you need tools, counselors are able to be um, impartial listeners and they can help you work through difficult places. They can help you get unstuck. They can give you a safe space to communicate things that you're afraid to communicate just one-on-one. Set up regular date nights. Um, There are times in our marriage when it was excruciatingly painful to even consider sitting across the table from my husband, looking him in the eye and not having a distraction of our kids or of another couple. And yet that is where healing really started. It's just having a date night, putting yourself in a position where you can have a conversation, where you can talk about real stuff. Maybe you can laugh and have fun together, have an adventure together, but be intentional about putting time on the calendar. We used to get a babysitter every Friday night, and it was she was booked in. She had a she had a permanent gig, and we never had to think or worry about it. And every Friday night, whether we felt like it or not, and t- trust me, there were many times we did not feel like it. We went and we sat across the table from each other, and we ate a meal and we had a conversation. And um, also, don't spend all your couple time with couples. You know, really protect your time. Don't give away that time to be with other people when you really need to give each other your best. And that's the next thing. Invest your best energy in your relationship with your husband. You know, um, everything else is stealing your energy. Your, your kids, your coworkers, your friends, your sister, your mom, whatever it would be. And those people are going to come and go out of your life. But your husband, your marriage is to, last, is to go the lifetime. And so really try to give your best energy, not just the leftovers, to your spouse. And then fight for your marriage. Um, fight for your marriage with God's help. And God is the God of heart transformation, and he can do immeasurably more than all you think or imagine. Now, having said that, I understand that it takes two people to fight for a marriage. And I know that it takes two people who trust in God together to fight for a marriage. And many of you, I know, have walked the painful journey of divorce because your husband didn't treat you well, or he wasn't willing to fight for the marriage, or, or you gave up on the marriage, or he was unfaithful. Whatever the circumstances, I know, because I know you, I know your stories, that many of you in this room, this is um, a really painful place for you, and I am so sorry. I just want to encourage you that God can meet you in your suffering. God can meet you and comfort you in your pain and, and disappointment. I also want to encourage you to know that we have a divorce care class that meets now on Sunday nights. Uh, at 4.45, and this is a group of people coming together and seeking hope and healing together in these really hard places of divorce or separation, whatever it is you've been through. We, we want to be able to help you be on this journey of healing and hope again. We also have a marriage ministry. So this marriage ministry pairs couples together with marriage mentors, and you go and have a meal together in someone's home, and you're, you do a study called Sacred Marriage, and this is an opportunity to, to kind of like Ask the deeper questions and get some tools and some some encouragement as you're trying to build your marriage, um, to be proactive in fostering a better way to relate to each other. 
Christian marriage is about love and service to one another. And when two people are honoring and loving and respecting each other, I don't think submission is ever an issue, right? When two people are loving and honoring and respecting each other, submission should never be an issue. And if a husband ever needs to demand that his wife submit, there is a much bigger problem going on in that marriage. So the truth is this, we reflect Jesus when we love, respect, and serve our husbands sacrificially. We reflect Jesus when we love, when we respect, and when we serve our husbands sacrificially. Now I think some of you in this room I know are single, and some of you are widowed, and you're probably thinking, (laughs) maybe you're relieved, grateful right now. Um, But I know that some of you are single This is stirring up some longing in you. Like you want to be married. You want to have someone to share your life with. And some of you who are widowed are thinking you're just longing for the person that you were married to who is no longer here on earth with you. I want to just encourage you to to just let Jesus be the lover of your soul right now. Just let him be the lover of your soul. Let him meet you in this hard place. I also know that some of you are divorced or separated, and this passage is bringing up a lot of hurt. And just coming to church can, can acerbate that pain. And I just want to encourage you to let Jesus be the lover of your soul right now. Just let him be that person to you. For those of you who are wives in this room, living with husbands, will you just pray and ask God to show you how to love your husband well? What's your part How might you be a true friend to to him? How might you honor him with your time and attention? Maybe you need to take the initiative to set up a date night. How can you encourage him in whatever he's going through in his workplace? Or maybe he's in a time of unemployment and he needs a special dose of encouragement. How might you care for his physical needs as he's dealing with a health crisis of some kind? How might you surprise him with just a secret blessing just because? How might you win him to Jesus with your persistent love and Christ-like example? So Peter has encouraged us to treat our spouses with respect. And now he explains how we're to treat other people in the community. It's interesting because it all starts at home. And if we learn how to treat each other in the context of our home this way, it'll easily translate into how we treat other people in our community. But in this next section, he's telling us to be like Jesus in our community. So he's encouraged these believers to grow up in their faith, to live out the reality of their relationship with Jesus amidst their community, because people are watching and learning about the gospel through their lives. And it's interesting because now Peter literally pauses. He stops. And he is going to summarize kind of all of the attitudes and actions that he's touched on so far. These are all the things that have come to light as he's talked to us about honoring our government, honoring our employees, and living in a marriage, a family situation. So he's going to give us nine virtues that are evidence of maturity in Christ. So he starts with this. He says, finally, so finally, he's pausing, finally, let me summarize All of you, now this is for everybody, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now notice these are five virtues that have to do with how we think and how we feel. So he says, first he says, unity of mind. What does that mean? That means a oneness of heart. 
Unity is not uniformity. That's not everybody sees things the same way. And it's not unanimity in that everybody agrees with exactly the same way of thinking. It's more like harmony. It's like everybody gets to be a note in the choir or sing a note in the, in the song. It's, it's bringing people together in a, in a sense of unity. He's saying sympathy. Sympathy is to feel with someone we are in close fellowship with. Um, We bear on each other emotionally as we live in community. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. It means to feel along with each other. Brotherly love, that's true companionship. It's affectionate friendship that goes deeper than superficial fellowship. So he's saying that love each other with this kind of familial bond, like sister to sister, brother to brother, brother to sister, to to really have a, a deep sense of love for each other. He's saying a tender heart. A tender heart is being kind and forgiving with each other and being able to notice those who are hurting and reach out to them. A humble mind, a mindset of humility, that's not a, a false pretense of modesty. It's actually being able to have an inner thought life that emulate, emanates from a humble perspective about oneself. So I think humbly about myself, therefore I engage humbly with other people. So these are all virtues that begin with the mind and the heart. And now he says some things that um, apply to our actions. So how do we actually behave as we engage with each other? He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So these are now um, four actions. Verse 9, he says, a forgiving nature. He's like, don't return evil for evil. Don't exact revenge when you've been hurt. Instead, respond to people who hurt you with a blessing. Why? Because Jesus took all of our sin on the cross and he died for our sin to give us the blessing of eternal life and his love and grace. So we've actually got resources now to actually return a blessing for people who revile us. Verse 10 says a controlled tongue, which is we've been hearing a lot about a controlled tongue this year. That means not lashing out, um, not striking back with your words. Um, As we mature, one of the things we notice about ourselves is that we don't use our tongues in the same way we used to, right? We're able to control our speech and be kind. A life of purity. That means turning away from temptation and resisting evil and resisting the sins that characterized our past life. So we don't go back to um, our past sins. We resist them. We replace bad thoughts and habits with good ones. And then a peaceful disposition. This means don't fight and argue over the small stuff. Don't dig in your heels and demand your rights. Instead, actually pursue peace. Work for peace. Work through conflict in a way that that, um, preserves love and achieves peace in your relationships. Now, why is this important? He says because the Lord sees and he hears and he knows all things. So let me ask you, where do you need to grow in maturity in your walk with Christ? Which of these nine attributes are you struggling with right now? You get to answer that question in your lesson today. Would you think about that? Which of these nine attributes do you really want to grow up in a little bit more this year as we go through this study? Because the truth is, the more we grow in our faith, the more our lives will reflect the character of Christ. The more we grow in our faith, the more our, our lives will reflect the character of Christ. 
How would your marriage be strengthened if you applied these attributes first in your marriage relationship? Sometimes it's easy to go out into the community and be any one of these nine things to God's glory, but at home, it's very, very different in how we treat each other. What if you were to apply these nine virtues first in your home to your kids, to your spouse, and then be that person out in the community in which you engage? How would you like to be more like Jesus in your marriage, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your church, in your school, wherever you go? So the challenge today is just to humbly approach this word from God. There's a timeless truth here for us. It's about the heart. It's about how we are more like Jesus in our relationships, our core relationships, and how that blesses the people we get to live with and how that shines the light of the gospel on the people around us. The the greatest testimony of the reality of your faith in Jesus is how you live out this gospel truth in your everyday life with the people that are rubbing shoulders with you in your home and outside your home. So we become more like Jesus when we humbly serve and selflessly love each other. Will you stand? Let's pray as we go out into our groups. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your heart. We thank you for your love. We thank you for you're the God of creation, the God of the universe who humbled yourself to come down from heaven, to live life on earth, to die on a cross for our sins, and to give us this treasured gift of your Holy Spirit, and to bless us with love and grace. And Lord, you are the example of one who has served so faithfully and so beautifully, and we want to be women who who reflect your grace, your beauty, your love to the people around us, and we need your help. Once again, Lord, we come before you and we want to confess that we, we don't do this well often. And we want to grow. We want to mature, which is why we're studying your word together. Help us, Lord. Quicken our maturity so that we can be more like Jesus. We ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.